0: Musical, linguistic... <laughs> 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 Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And with me today, as virtual hosts, are a host of fellow saloners who have either made uh, direct donation to the salon or who have paid for a copy of the audiobook version of my novel The Genesis Generation, proceeds of which also go to paying the expenses associated with these podcasts. And these wonderful people are Joseph W., Stuart T., Adrian D., Fox over at ultrafield.tv, Daniel D., and Andrew W., So, Joseph, Stuart, Adrian, Fox, Daniel, and Andrew, I, I really wish that there was more I could say besides thank you, but I hope that you and all of the other supporters of the salon over the years know how much I appreciate you. And that also goes for everyone who joins us here each week. We're all in this together, you know. Also, I want to give a plug to fellow saloner Joe Matheny's podcast, which is called The G-Spot, and uh, in particular to his most recent podcast, which features an interview with me. So if you're wanting to know a little more about my background, you might want to check out Joe's podcast. And uh, I'll put a link to it along with the program notes for this podcast, which, as you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. So now, uh, just three days after my last podcast, we're going to pick up where we left off, and that is with the uh, interrogators, I think I should call them, uh, asking Dr. Leary about his sanity, as if dropping a little acid may have done him some harm. And as ridiculous as that sounds today, uh, back in 1976 in Houston, when these questions were being asked, uh, well, it was the height of the U.S. government's disinformation campaign about LSD. But, as you're about to hear, Timothy Leary didn't let those in-your-face questions about his sanity bother him in the least.
1: Uh, How can you defend your sanity anywhere, anyhow, particularly in a rather insane world? uh, uh, It's the old parable that in a a very insane society, an sane person is considered eccentric, and uh, uh, seeing too much uh, can make you... uh, Look, uh, or act, uh, different. But, uh, no, i I'm
2: very happy with my sanity. I was, uh, wondering if, as far as I know, you've not had any neurological examinations or anything like that when you were, uh, in prison. I was, I think I have read it published that you, uh, did have, uh, some extensive psychological testing at one point. That involved the Leary battery was that had some IQ testing. Uh, you know, I I think that uh, the issue of being brain damaged was was that is that uh, information correct
1: that you have had testing and uh, yes, so, when I was first uh, when I was first brought into the California prison system in 1970, they gave me the standard battery of tests, including some tests that I designed myself. Uh, I wrote about this in the book Confessions of the Whole Fiend. After all, uh looked at it pragmatically. The trick of taking intelligence tests is to get the highest score possible in terms of the intelligence as defined by the middle-class uh, intellectuals who designed the test, so that my IQ test came out very high. And then uh, during my escape trial in, uh, I believe it was April 1973, this is after I was kidnapped and brought back, because uh, uh, so much rumors going on, uh, about uh, my mental capacity, I called in a battery of neurologists and psychologists, uh, including some employed by the state of California, and uh, one man who worked for uh, Santa Cruz county and I had them give me a uh, intelligence test and I came out at the genius level but that's again uh, after all, I understand uh, psychological tests so that uh, I was more going through a performance than proving anything to myself. Uh,
2: Do you feel that that performance uh, made any difference as far as your image to people, that it did anything to dispel those uh,
1: negative images that were created about you? No, I don't think so. Uh, Anyone, yeah, you you have to be very realistic about this. In a perfect democracy, every election would end in a tie, that is, everyone would be, the issues will be so presented that uh, 50% will be pro 50% will be con. My point is that any time you enter the public arena and start broadcasting signals, uh, the best you can expect for is a 50-50 break. That uh, half are going to like it and half won't. Uh, in the case of ideas that are so futuristic and so powerful as the ones that I've been transmitting, you're going to get. You're lucky if you get 15 or 20% of the people that will uh, listen to you. Uh, The advantage is that it's going to be the most courageous and intelligent and uh, open-minded, 15 to 20 percent, so you've got a lot going for you. But it's the nature of the game that a philosopher who's proposing radical new ideas will be opposed by 80 percent of uh, society. Look at Simmelweis, the great uh, uh, physician who discovered infectious diseases. He ended up totally ostracized and busted. Look at Pasteur, who was laughed at. Look at Galileo. Not that I'm comparing myself with these people, but I'm simply defining the nature of the game. I, I don't. I'm not at all interested in image. People talk to me about my image, and I, I laugh at them. I'm interested in communicating with the 10 percent of the human race who's ready to migrate, ready to mutate, ready to move on, ready to change. And uh, I. It's a hopeless proposition. See, If you try to please everybody, you get into a Carter-Ford election that you're so uh, bland and you're so uh, custard-like in your statements that that, uh, you're not saying anything. I expect and welcome uh, 80% uh, skepticism to my ideas because uh, the ideas that I'm transmitting are extremely uh, challenging to our conceptions uh, of human nature. And uh, it's to be expected, and uh, you're welcome that uh, the mass of society uh, will not uh, accept them readily.
2: You know, one of the images, and I guess it's uh, it's concerned me as a, you know, as a psychologist, and getting into a field that, that you have been in. Is that uh, the charge is that you were professionally responsible in advocating these uh, futuristic ideas rather than staying within the more traditional domain of the, of the field and i uh, I wonder what do you think about what have you been responsible to been uh, responsible to the uh, limitations that the field uh, has lived within what what have you been
1: responsible to? Well, from an early age i 've been interested in knowing one thing, and that is uh, what's what is it all about? <coughs> Why am I here? Why is the human species here? Where are we going what 's the what the directional cause of our problems, and how can we uh, uh, get our compass bearing so that we can uh, move move smoothly with the evolutionary currents uh, So my responsibility now is to the DNA code. Uh, my thinking is obsessed with uh, evolutionary notions. I see myself and our species as, uh, as robot participants in evolutionary processes. Now, the interesting thing about our robothood, and we're all robots, we're 99% robots, we're stamped out by DNA code the way Chrysler's and Pontiac's and Ford's are stamped out from the, uh, the great factories uh, and the mass assembly lines. I said 99%, and it's the 1% of us, of our nervous system, 1% possibility that we can decipher, uh, the, uh, instructions that came on the package. That we are the robots who can, uh, open up the, uh, the, uh, panels and look within and find out the, uh, how our brains work and how our brains intersect with the RNA and DNA. We are the robots who can figure out uh, the nature of our own robothood, and start asking the post-robot questions of what does she want, well, what's the purpose, why are we here? So my responsibility to repeat is to the genetic process and the evolutionary process as I see it. Now, this is an extremely uh, fun position to take. It, it makes you very good-natured about human nature. Uh, I don't get involved in us and them. I see us all playing parts uh, in the evolutionary process. It leads to a very gentle and uh, uh, embracing a notion of human nature, and uh, it, do, it does encourage change. My responsibility is to change, to change myself, to keep myself open. People say to me. Well, how come you change so much? You're not leading a light brigade charge back to Woodstock, and uh, you're not saying what you said in the 60s. Well, come on. uh, Why haven't you changed? Everything's changed since the 60s. Uh, The lessons have been learned. The great uh, discoveries from the 60s are now part and parcel of uh, the American consumer uh, uh, mentality. Uh, there There are new change issues involved now, and I try to keep in touch with them. I guess maybe that could kind of focus us back more concretely on your being
2: here tonight and what you're doing in Houston and how you're actually spending your time now as a as an evolutionary agent and uh, as a you know this vision that you have of, of our future.
1: Evolution is moving very quickly these days, and uh, the scriptwriters are, are shoving new scripts on us at a very rapid rate, and. Uh, I take it for granted that I change from from season to season.
2: Well, maybe you can uh, tell us about what the uh, what scripts you see right now
1: as the current ones. Well, there's only one script as I, as I said before, and that's change. That, that's the uh, message of DNA. Specifically, there are four very practical concrete techniques that the DNA code uses uh, to uh, help evolution. And interestingly enough, these are all M's uh, to make, uh, make it easy to remember. There's mutation. Mutation is the way that a species changes. Then there's metamorphosis or molting. That's how an individual changes. And each one of us has gone through at least four molts or metamorphoses in our our life, we were little babies with big heads and small bodies and then we learned how to crawl, then we learned how to talk and walk, then we learned to be uh, domesticated sexual impersonators, uh, which defines the civilized domesticated ape. Some of us have moved uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, more complex energy uh, mutations or, or metamorphoses. Uh, a third element of uh, change, a third technique of DNA code, and this is the classic one, is migration. We all uh, are a result of migrations. We started off under the water, and then we moved on to the shoreline, and we moved on to the prairie. We developed forepaws, and we, develop, we stood up on, um, on our two hind feet. Uh, we're moving faster, we're moving farther. That's the history of, uh, of the evolution of life on this planet. So migration is the third uh, form of change. And the fourth, and that's why I'm in this room, I think why all of us are in this room, the fourth technique of the DNA code is uh, is media or marketing. Uh, it doesn't do any good to have a good idea unless uh, somehow you can uh, uh, hook it up to energy and send it out. And then again, the good idea is no good unless it's received uh, by those who are ready to receive it and, uh, and bring about changes. So that, uh, I'm very involved in, in, uh, in media these days because I think, uh, I do have some new ideas that our species needs, particularly younger people are looking for new ideas, I think. And these ideas, to answer your question, uh, finally, Henry, uh, have to do with, uh, m- migration and mutation, metamorphosis. That is, uh, three ideas which I think are currently hot, not hot in a in a marketplace uh, fad sense, but uh, evolutionarily hot, uh, the three ideas that the DNA code is now popping on us uh, are uh, space migration. Uh, we, we're realizing that we're not terrestrials, that we're supposed to, some of us are supposed to leave the planet and to uh, start moving around in post-terrestrial spaces. And the second new idea is intelligence increase. Uh, we can be exactly as smart as we want to be. Uh, our, our intelligence is limited exactly by our own laziness and our own apprehensions that if you get too smart, you're in trouble. Because I'm here to tell you, if you get too smart, you're in trouble. <laughs> and, uh, the third new idea, which I think is inevitable and, uh, and which we are, for which we are ready, is life extension. Uh, scientists tell us that we could double the lifespan within three or four years. Uh, these three ideas go together. We've used the acronym SMILE, S-M-I-Square-L-E, Space Migration Intelligence and Peace and Life Extension, to uh, nail down this, uh, this basic point that these three things go together, and uh, one without the other two would lead to a uh, forest or nightmare. Well,
3: since you, you've already
1: when you, uh,
3: discussed the second of the M's, metamorphosis, um, outline the first four sections of, um, of the periodic table of energy, which is a rough uh, chart for the indications thus far that you've found as to the directions that intelligence increase goes. Uh, would you care to outline that portion of it first? Um, uh, rough methodology of the intelligence
1: increase. Like the first four circuits of the nervous system. Yes. Yeah. Well, I refer to it. Everyone who is listening to this uh, program, uh, who is uh, adolescent or post-adolescent, uh, has gone through four uh, metamorphoses or four molts in your lifetime. As, you were, as I say, you were a tiny baby once, almost a marine creature. You couldn't walk. You had to be supported and carried. At that time, you had one circuit of your brain, which is interested only in biological survival—food, warmth. Then uh, you migrated and mutated a second time when you left your mother's arms. That was a big migration. Well, wow, compared to the migration from Europe to America, leaving your mother's arms was a tremendous feat. And each, each, each one of these uh, mutation migrations that we go through individually. Uh, it's so a very stormy period in the individual's life, and I think that uh, any one of our of our listeners who could look back would remember these periods of, of transition because it literally is a death where you're giving up the security of your mother's arms to crawl around down there on the floor. It's very dangerous where people like to step on you and all these huge monsters that are playing these games of power and status and territory. What's mine? What's yours? And you're too weak to redefend yourself. So, this is, a, this is a, these periods of migration. And these periods of uh, metamorphosis uh, are always uh, fraught with, uh, with emotion and, uh, and anxiety. And that, of course, what's happening today in America. We have to be very gentle with each other because we are going through a period of, uh, of mutation. Okay, so the second uh, circuit of your nervous system is the emotional m- or emotional. Aspect uh, where you're learning to deal with power, status, pecking order, and then you develop all these techniques of camouflage or pretense, weakness, or uh, you know all the mammalian uh, reactions that uh, we call emotions, and which our our uh, Shakespearean uh, dramatists uh, tend to glorify far beyond their primitive state. Anyway, the third mutation takes place when. Uh, the left hemisphere of your brain kicks into operation, and you learn how to use the nine uh, muscles of your uh, vocal cord, and you learn to use your thumb and your uh, your hand to manipulate symbols. This uh, mutation, which each one of us uh, went through, is again accompanied by a migration. Because we migrated from the local, uh, from your home, and you moved down to the kindergarten and to the primary school, and uh, as your symbol uh, facilities developed, uh, you you moved up to grammar school and and the high school. Then the fourth grade mutation, and certainly no one can deny that uh, a tremendous transformation took place in our physiology and our neurology uh, when adolescence develops and all those protuberances and hair growth suddenly began popping out. And light bulbs went off in our heads as the fourth circuit of our nervous system uh, told us that there was a new game to be played, which has to do with sperm egg arrangements and uh, mating and uh, grooming and uh, essentially the selection of a sex role. We're all sex impersonators. We learn during adolescence uh, to pick up one of the many sex roles, and uh, we try them out, and we uh, finally settle on one. And when we've done that, we become a domesticated uh, member of the. Uh, of the herd or the anthill, and uh, we've completed the terrestrial cycle of uh, of life. Well, we call these the first four circuits. Uh, these are the first uh, four terrestrial uh, survival techniques, and you have to master these before you can go on. Well, obviously, um,
3: these are common circuitry, um, I and mean, they're common experience, and obviously the state of consciousness on the planet today is aware of the fact that those four circuits are not adequate to the needs that an increasing amount of human beings are are discovering. Um, the turbulence in the 60s being that showing definite major social signs of the chafing. Um, do the next five? Do the next four? There are four more circuits and. How do they resolve the bind that we've obviously gotten ourselves into? I mean, this bind has led most of the uh, Third Circuit masters of the world to predict imminent doom uh, yes. imminently. Mm-hmm. And uh, what is the alternative?
1: Well, before I, I outline the next, there are four stages of evolution which are going to come within the lifetime of most of the listeners of this program. But before I go into the next four stages of evolution, I'd like to remind uh, our listeners that uh, the four mutations that we've gone through, the four migrations that we've gone through as individuals, which took us from our mother's arms uh, to the point of uh, socio-sexual domestication, have recapitulated the four great movements in in the evolution of species. We all started off as... uh, as uh, <clears throat> marine creatures. We were all amoebas once uh, under the water. And then the, we've gone through the same cycle of uh, mutation and migration. And I'm sure that all these cycles in history have, uh, have produced the turmoil that we saw in the 60s. I'm sure that uh, when, uh, you know, uh, several hundred million years ago, perhaps over a billion years ago, in some of these tidal pools Uh, There was a youth rebellion and a drug rebellion when some of the amoebas began hanging out in places and overdosing on uh, dangerous drugs like calcium. Now when that happened, uh, you know, the the establishment of amoebas got together and said, well, you know what, it's proven scientifically that if you overdose on calcium, you mutate. It breaks your chromosomes and you develop bones, and if God had wanted amoeba to have bones, he wouldn't have made calcium illegal. So, uh, uh, this process of uh, of evolution has always involved uh, mutations which shake up the uh, the species at the moment and lead to a migration. I'm sure when we climbed out on the shoreline, again there was a great uh, upset uh, among the marine creatures that some of the young. Fish were lying around on uh, shorelines, uh, digging the radiation and uh, not playing fish games, and overdosing on dangerous drugs like oxygen. And uh, which, of course, uh, you know, if you fool around with drugs like oxygen, you know what happens—you uh, develop lungs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we don't want any uh, self-respecting fish with lungs. Well, what'll happen uh, when the gills are gone? Yeah, right. The mystery will be. Yeah, done. right. So. Uh, the the interesting thing is that uh, I, I keep repeating this to people because uh, I think it's a signal you need. We're all evolving, and it's our it's our role to be mutants. And uh, it's time to evolve again. And if you're not evolving, uh, you're in trouble. Unless you're consciously resting and waiting for the next uh, mutation and migration to take place. We're all migrants too. And uh, sure, there are some people that stayed back in the water, and they're still there. Most Europeans, you see, had the chance to come over to this new world, but they didn't migrate. They didn't want to take that chance. Uh, and so it's true that as we move into the future, some will migrate and mutate and some won't. The web must be very gentle with each other and not get involved in genocidal chauvinisms here uh, uh, because it is all one one life web. that uh, We call these the first four circuits. Uh, these are the first uh, four terrestrial uh, survival techniques and you have to master these before you can go on. These
3: are common circuitry um, and they're common experience and obviously the state of consciousness on the planet today is aware of the fact that those four circuits are not adequate to the needs that an increasing amount of human beings are, are discovering. Um, the turbulence in the sixties being that showing definite major social signs of the chafing. There are four more circuits, and how do they resolve the bind that we've obviously gotten ourselves into? I mean, this bind has led most of the uh, Third Circuit masters of the world to predict
1: imminent doom. What is the alternative? There are four stages of evolution which are going to come within the lifetimes of most of the listeners of this program. But before I go into the next four stages of evolution, I'd like to remind uh, our listeners that uh, the four mutations that we've gone through, the four migrations that we've gone through as individuals, which took us from our mother's arms uh, to the point of uh, socio-sexual domestication, have recapitulated the four great movements in the evolution of species. We all started off as... uh, as, uh, marine creatures, We were amoebas once uh, under the water, and then we've gone through the same cycle of uh, mutation, migration, and I'm sure that all these cycles in history have, uh, have produced the turmoil that we saw in the 60s. To, uh, to finally come back to your question to about the next four movements, I wanted the listeners to understand that, that this is not just individual, but that s- the species itself is, is, is moving. The next great mutation in migration in the life process on this planet is going to involve space migration. Now, I want to point out that uh, space migration is not Buck Rogers, rockets, uh, doesn't involve any of this uh, galactic cowboys and Indians of uh, Star Trek. Uh, Space migration is the most mundane thing, if you pardon the pun. We're simply going to build out there in, in uh, lunar Earth orbit, uh, cylinders which are between 10 and 30 miles long, in which the landscape will be exactly like the landscape that's preferred down here. Uh, there will be as many as 20 or possibly even 30, uh, cities like Houston or uh, Lake Tau or Portofino uh, in, in Italy or uh, Stadts uh, ski resorts. Uh. It, matter of fact, uh, those of you who are, you know, really want to get the feeling for space migration, as you walk around your hometown right now, imagine that you're in a space cylinder, but just imagine that over the horizon uh, there's an Algerian uh, uh, sand dune or just over the other uh, hill there's a, uh, a Swiss ski resort. of uh, fact, you could, uh, I'm thinking of making a movie in which uh, we demonstrate that uh, uh, you could transplant earthlings and put them in one of these space cylinders, and it would take them a long time to figure out uh, that they were really living in space, because uh, essentially, of course, the earth is a, is a spaceship itself.
4: Do you really think that uh, man can be so presumptuous as to come anywhere near the beauty, subtlety, and ecology of the landscape of the earth as it is naturally
1: evolved? Absolutely. Absolutely. The Judeo-Christian philosophy tells us that man has fallen, original sin. And there's always this notion that we're incompetence and that we're somehow cluttering up. There's a new ecological uh, morality that uh, I believe in ecological consciousness, but I don't believe in ecological uh, morality or ecological lawmaking. I actually refuse to be strapped into a seatbelt. I'll walk before I let buzzers tell me that I have to uh, have... I'll take my chances, and uh, I won't complain if I get hurt, but uh, there's this this notion that that man is presumptuous. Now, I believe that the DNA code has pre-programmed everything. I think it's all perfect. I think that uh, humanity is playing its part, just as every species plays its part, every protein molecule plays its part, in a design which has been worked out. And what's happening on this planet is happening on literally billions of planets like ours throughout our local uh, galaxy alone. We think we're rather unique. Actually, we're just frogs in a pond, and uh, in our area of the galaxy alone there are are millions of little frog pond planets like ours in which we're evolving exactly as we are here. As a matter of fact, I suspect, and this is getting in, this is belief and not fact. Most everything I'm saying in this program uh, comes from scientists. I'm not making any of this up. I'm just giving, I'm passing on uh, the uh, findings of Gerard O'Neill and of the NASA Committees for Studies-Based Migration. And when we get the life extension, I'm passing on uh, the, um, the findings of geneticists and, uh, and biologists. But now I'll give you a, a belief or I'll give you a, a fun fantasy. Uh, I find it useful and entertaining and stimulating to my intelligence to, uh, to uh, believe, quote, believe, that we're cloned here and that we will find ourselves seated on uh, <coughs> on uh, millions of other planets. So we get <coughs> the question of who seated us, or are we presumptuous to uh, terraform uh, a planet, or are we being presumptuous to take over nature's role in, uh, in building new worlds? No, uh, that's what we're supposed to do. Think of us as the humble gardeners, or the human species now is like a teamster's union. It's our job just to build the... Uh, The ships to get us up there, to get not by us, I mean all forms of life, because we got to take all forms of life with us. I mean, the Noah's Ark uh, metaphor is one of the most pervasive uh, throughout human philosophy. Almost every tribe and primitive uh, island uh, religious group has their Noah's Ark myth uh, that uh, some catastrophe was going to happen. And so they got together and they took two of each species. Uh, I think that's where it's at and I think that's our role. It's neither uh, presumptuous nor is it uh, uh, original sin, Judeo-Christian, uh, uh, put down of human species. We're simply uh, programmed at the right time to play this robot role of getting all life off the planet. Well, oh, I can
4: I can see that and accept it or reject it, it doesn't really make any difference. But, uh uh, I mean that's uh, quite a substantially different thing saying that uh, we're we're programmed we're designed to uh, to uh, move into space to start traveling in space to start understanding the uh, immensity out there which has mysteries in it which uh, dwarf the mysteries of our mother earth but uh I can't go along with you when you say living in a tin can come can come anywhere near living on the surface of good old mother earth.
1: That becomes a matter of aesthetics. You see, I see us now I could give you a dozen metaphors. It's fourteen ninety three. Now we're sitting around in a in a coffee shop in Lisbon, Spain, and see so I say, Hey man, this guy Columbus come back and the world is round, it's not flat and there's all this land over there and you say, Well, uh, I'd rather stay here and go, there are no cathedrals over there, and, uh, you know, come on, they don't have, they had a good wine over there, okay, baby, you stay, let us go, then we'll come back and we'll bring you, you know, and then uh, there's options always open, uh, you can change your mind. I think these conversations are necessary, I think we got, these conversations we're having took place when we were underwater, deciding, well, uh, we're going to climb out there and try it out, uh, as long as uh, I know you won't put us in jail or keep us from trying it, and I know you'll keep your eyes open and your ears open and see how we do. And I think you're ready to change your mind. Uh, you know, it's not a tin can. As a matter of fact, think of the people, most people on this planet live in tin cans, namely motor cars, right? And they live in these funny little hunky-dunk, uh, uh, you know, uh, apart- condominium apartments. Uh, see, the facts of the matter are, in space, uh, you can have up to five acres, perhaps even more, and you can design exactly as you want. The cylinders far from being tin cans, there'll be no manufacturing or agriculture in the 30-mile residence. That'll all be outside. So the 30 miles will be an incredible park. Who but the greatest millionaires have uh, 30 miles of uh, of uh, landscape to wander around in? And not no cars, no tipsy down here. We climb into the tin cans with pneumatic rubber tires. Up there, um, the, sure, there'll be little cylinders outside for those who want a hot, hot, uh, hot rod, drag. <laughs> the beauty about space migration is everything you do down here you can bring up there, except for uh, for destructive. Thing. If you want to uh, have little cylinders where people want to shoot out get from the Saturday night, and sure they can do it. Build little cylinders for hell, Hell's Angels where they can fight with each other. Uh, we're not against uh, really anything. We want to give everybody the space to do their own thing. So it's not tin cans. The, for, I think for most people, the quality of life And the relationship to nature will be much, and also there's the glory and the creativity of creating a landscape Uh, we're reserving the DNA code to bring the soil there and to to work out an ecological system. Of course, this is Los Angeles thinking. Now, the thing about Los Angeles, which is amusing, those of you men there, uh, 50 years ago, Los Angeles was a desert, and look at it now, nowhere on the planet. As the average person, an average middle class person put more effort into beautifying the environment. Now it's all man made, it's all human made, but still, it's kind of, and you know, Los Angeles is funny too because people uh, lived out their uh, visions there. You have know, Babylonian temples and Mexican haciendas and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Cape Cod cottages and, uh, I, I think it's amusing. I think it's the West Coast in a sense, it's the last frontier, and it's there where people's final terrestrial visions could be expressed on this desert, which is now, they're in more palm trees now, in Los Angeles, than they're on the Sahara. Well, I
4: still say what you're mostly going to need out at L5 is ecologists and people who can deal with whole systems. Absolutely. On that
3: question of, of presumption, as we were talking yesterday about this Judeo-Christian morality, which is overlaid onto ecological perceptions, I, I see it as a calcified structure that genetically was programmed. Um, your response was, "What is needed is consciousness of that." Yeah. And I see, and you you offhandedly um, dropped the whole Judeo-Christian culture, which may leave some of the listeners uh, wondering where it went to. Um, <laughs>
1: No. But. <laughs> Wait, uh, the judeo-christian thing is based on the fall got it the fall it's based on gravity so if you want to know great. what original sin is it's gravity <laughs> you want to know what the original grace is it's levity
3: <laughs> is the possibility of this obviously disintegrating ethic i mean as the pornography trials go around as the um, drug trials go around obviously the ethic is disintegrating, that the Judeo-Christian ethic, basically what it did is it restricted people from doing things until such time as the species evolved to enough consciousness to Absolutely. look at what it was encountering.
1: Absolutely. So that a consciousness, a fluid consciousness, of yeah, encounter... The Judeo-Christian philosophy was a very necessary philosophy to, uh, to somehow socialize... It's uh, civilized, domesticated apes, because that it's a domesticated ape philosophy. Do not cover your neighbor's wife. Do not cover your neighbor's goods. I mean, come on, is that the kind of philosophy that's going to lead us into glories of uh, of evolution? You know, it's a it's a uh, it's a way to ha- hold down the animals. And I totally, the very fact that it's existed for two thousand years is testimony to the fact that it was necessary and that it worked. It, it allowed uh, society to get together. Uh, to cooperate enough. That's a great thing of Christianity that it taught us uh, how to cooperate so that we could build the uh, galleys and build the, uh, the technology, which technology is simply extensions of our nervous system to the point where we can evolve to the next stage. So, uh, it's, uh, the same thing is true, by the way, Buddhism. Uh, I often say, you know, Buddhism was based on the discovery by the Buddha, who was a prince. Now, by prince, he means he was a middle-class young man that went to college because his family kept him from knowing the facts of life, just as most college students are kept away from the facts of life. Then he discovered, you know, that that great uh, triple discovery of the Buddha, which led to a philosophy that's very powerful. He discovered death. He saw a dead man. He discovered illness. He never knew that existed. They discovered uh, uh, aging, and he said, my God, if that's the bottom line of life, why should I bother to uh, get my degree and become a prince and so forth? I'm going to drop out because life is meaningless, because the end point of life is, uh, is disease, senility, senility, impotence, and death. Now, that was a very powerful psychology for pre-scientific uh, species of domesticated primates. But now, if the Buddha were alive today, he'd be majoring in uh, biogenetics, and he would be uh, reading Scientific American, and he would realize that uh, death is no longer necessary, that disease is being rapidly eliminated, and that uh, literally the only uh, blocks to uh, immortality are, uh, are psychological. So Buddhism, as was true of the Judeo-Christian uh, philosophy, was necessary at a time in our evolution, but we have to be aware that we're growing beyond that and to to repeat the uh, old philosophies <coughs> that just don't work today is, uh, is a mistake. We, we, we revere them, we cherish them, but uh, we've got to move on beyond them. There's
3: um, one technical difficulty that um, I'm needs sure. to be overcome, one basic one that I'm thinking in terms of, which is that obviously the entire species, uh, individual members of the entire species are not evolving at the same rate or not at the same state of evolution, yet with the situation, at least in this country and most of the Western world, of electronic media, of mass distribution of information, we find a lot of people who are at evolutionary step, if you grade it from 1 to 10, evolutionary step 3, coming in contact with information from evolutionary step 7 and becoming quite agitated and reacting on that plane, possibly or whatever way. is there a way to smooth over this transmission difficulty? Yes. Although you did say uh, being
1: gentle. Well, driver. of course, uh, you're, you're putting your finger on one of the uh, great occupational hazards, another genetic uh, agent. In the 60s, we introduced, see, I'm the salesman for DNA Goat. When I said we, I'm uh, speaking, of course, to the manufacturers, introduced... Uh, <laughs> the human body and the human brain as your own. Uh, we say, this is station, uh, Timothy Larry Broadcasting Station, uh, KDNA, and we offer you a uh, 30 billion cell brain. We offer you a five-circuit body for your pleasure, enjoyment, and uh, for the enrichment of your life. Well, come on. The idea that consciousness was something that you could move and change, and the, the idea that your body was a time filled with all sorts of receptors that you weren't aware of and that could be tuned in and uh, moved around for your pleasure and uh, for your disciplined performance. Uh, this was a, an evolutionary idea. It did create predictable reaction. And I think, though, that there has never been a cultural change in history that was as profound, as pervasive, and as bloodless as the cultural revolution of the uh, 60s. The great thing about it was that it was done with with humor, and it was done with uh, compassion, and it was done with uh, a lot of modesty. Uh, Of course, some of the hippies tended to be megalomaniac and messianic, uh, and that led to uh, a few skulls being cracked. But uh, by and large, it was a smiling revolution, and it was a a levitational uh, procedure. And by and large, I'm very proud of what happened in the 60s. Every aspect of our culture was reformed and and revised and reviewed and improved. The same thing will happen as we move into the next uh, evolutionary stages, which as I say are space migration and, and increased use of technology for neurological purposes. It's the function of the mutants to be totally aware of the anxieties they create in those they are leaving. Think of, think of us as the advanced scouts for the entire human race. We're volunteering for this uh, role. Uh, if we come to grief, if uh, taking drugs does rot your head and uh, break your chromosomes, snap and crack, <laughs> then, uh, then uh, let us take the risks. Uh, we do it voluntarily. Watch us very carefully. Check us out. But keep open to us, and uh, we'll keep uh, feeding back our results to you because that's our function. As evolutionary pioneers
4: uh, as you as you go into space, what I would be looking for is the difficulties in uh, coexisting with an artificial environment. However, uh, I tend to think that uh, we are ready for uh, some kind of evolutionary step. Um, for one thing, our methods of handling information have gotten a great deal more sophisticated. We have computers, and we have ways of even thinking, conceptualizing information uh, that are new. And, uh, you know, we're actually finding ways where the man in the street is actually beginning to uh, be able to think in the way that Einstein did. You know, and it's taken years, but there are vast, uh, vast implications for uh, just being able to think uh, yeah, and conceptualize you your reality in, in a different
1: way. The television is an Einsteinian device because it produces a relativity of realities the average American kid or the Western European kid who has access to a television, in one week by dialing and tuning can experience more realities and a relativism of realities than the most widely traveled person did a hundred years ago. So that's, uh, yeah, I'm very, I used, to, I've been through <coughs> all the liberal radical stages. Now At the moment, I've come to a position where uh, I think the General Motors and uh, Ford and those uh, monolithic auto companies blindly, without realizing what they were doing, performed a tremendous evolutionary task. They took peasant, domesticated primates off the farms and in one generation put them behind the wheel of rapidly moving (laughs) things where they're shifting and talking about cylinders and, uh, you know, they're learning how to uh, externalized uh, their nervous system, So, uh, and it got people in the idea of motion it got them uh, you know it, it changed the, as we know the sexual mores because you could get, get out in the back seat of a car and uh, uh, the, 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 granted that it's, uh, when it 's uh looked at the mass level it, it seems uh, plastic and it seems roboty, but I want to tell you, life on those farms was pretty roboty too uh, you were talking about five circuits the sixties you were talking about the sixties
4: and five circuits. And then uh, I have uh, neurologic, and uh, you talk about seven circuits there. Now I understand you're up to eight. Yeah. You've covered four. Is there something different in nature about the four which follow? Uh, I'm wondering whether we are going into a phase of more conscious evolution, perhaps, or uh, uh, what what is involved in the next four steps? Well,
1: the, the fifth, uh, I've described the first four circuits of the nervous system, which uh, every adult human terrestrial uses to get along. Then in the 60s, on a mass scale, a a new circuit of the nervous system was activated, and we call this the Fifth Circuit, and it has to do with consciousness of the body and the brain as instruments you can use yourself. Now this this was a rarity. In the past, only the nobility and the aristocracy and the big stars were able to say, my body is my own. It doesn't belong to the church or the state, and I can put whom and what I please in my own body and experience what I want with my own body. This was considered just totally impossible for the average person uh, until the 60s. It did take a period of affluence and technological uh, superfluity to uh, allow the, the circuit to uh, emerge. The fifth circuit of the nervous system is, uh, is body consciousness, and certainly no one can quarrel with the with my statement that a tremendous new multi-billion-dollar industry is developed in this in this country, which you could call body consciousness. I'm talking about water beds and and perfumes and scents and strange new uh, textures. The whole notion of bubble baths, and uh, I'm talking about diets and health foods, I'm talking about uh, all the new yogas and, and the uh, the sense of not to mention new sexuality and the varieties. Uh, and the complexities of erotic uh, behavior. But it's the same thing that others would call decadence compared to the last days of the Roman Empire. It is true that in the past, uh, it was at the moment of high imperial success that there was enough affluence and security from the four terrestrial circuits that the nobility could start playing with uh, new forms of consciousness and could uh, the nobility could uh, announce their independence from uh, the uh, first four survival circuits. Now, in the past, this was survivally dangerous because uh, the Romans would be developing their body consciousness. Meanwhile, the Medes and the Persians and the Huns and the Goths were at the uh, doorstep. Uh, and this, of course, was the terror that haunted uh, J. Edgar Hoover and Richard Nixon and LBJ in the uh, 60s, if our young people would rather uh, do meditation and get high than fight in Vietnam, then we're in trouble, because they were thinking, with rear-view mirror thinking, that every uh, great empire in the, in the past, the Egyptian, the Persian, the Babylonian, the Greek, uh, the Roman, and uh, of course even the, the British Empire became very decadent as it uh, passed the high point of its expansion. The rear viewing mirror thinking is what the thing that changes it all is that now, for the first time, we have something for the turned on consciousness to do, and some place for them to go, and that's out. The problem in the '60s was you could get high, and you could uh, you could have visions, you could uh, reproduce the Buddha, Hindu trips, you could see it all, and then you came down the next morning, and what was going on? The Vietnam War, racism. Uh, Cultural catastrophes and uh, a police repression, and there was this tremendous, literally, no place to go. The great mutational step that's taken us from, given the Fifth Circuit someplace to go, was the Apollo uh, lunar soil samples, uh, showed us that the moon was literally more than a gold mine. The moon has exactly the elements and minerals that are needed to build new worlds in space. Now, Space migration is nothing, it's like building condominiums. It's no big deal at all. The Space migration, to me and to O'Neill and to those people who are philosophically interested in it, simply provides an externalization of the visions of the 60s. But now, for the first time, we have some place to go where we can live out our new cultural uh, visions. Uh, We can experiment with lifestyles. You can't do that on the surface of a shrinking planet. Uh, with the uh, population increasing. So space migration is tied to consciousness movement of the 60s, which we call the Fifth Circuit activation. Is that clear? Pretty,
4: Pretty clear. Yeah. I, I'm really glad you mentioned that about the moon because it's, uh, the fact that the moon is full of treasures is not very often brought out for some reason. Nobody stops to think that everything uh, that you need to build a huge colony in space is available on the moon, and that it really doesn't take very much—it uh, doesn't take very much fuel to lift off from the moon and move it back up to L5. Uh, yeah,
1: it's literally—they say it's about 100 times cheaper to build a beautiful garden condominium, a five-acre per person place up there using lunar soil, than it does to build a condominium for 10,000 people down here. I' not gravity, that's big issue you. I, I don't um, know if there is any information
3: stoppage from the various agencies that have been on the moon, but I' am reminded, as you said that, of the fact that uh, back at the end of the last century when John D. Rockefeller the I was sent down to Pennsylvania by his boss to find out if this black goop that was coming out of the ground was worth anything. He looked it over, came back, and said it's worthless. There's no commercial potential. Right. And then proceeded. Now, I don't know that there's, or even suspect, a, an information stoppage conspiracy, but there is that possibility, maybe just because
2: people don't. Well, the L5 don't Society it. has uh, made some real uh, strides in making it known that good uh, things are going on up
1: there. I, I agree with you in your analysis of the Rockefeller uh, phenomena. Uh, the public doesn't realize that the moon is more than a gold mine for space migration. It's the most valuable, valuable piece of uh, territory that that's ever existed. However, I make this flat prediction that in the research and development laboratories of every large aerospace and energy company in the world, they're studying the implications of the Moon as soil samples, and uh, they're thinking about it. Now, naturally, they're not talking about it. Uh, It's not. I don't believe in paranoid uh, conspiracy theories. uh, You know, but still, uh, there's no question that uh, the the real meaning and value of the lunar samples has not been. broadcast to the American people. At this point, I think we should mention, with your permission, the L5 Society, which is a group of scientists and interested non-scientists uh, who are uh, publicizing and backing space migration. The L5 Society has a newsletter, and you can uh, get in touch with them by writing L5, 1620 North Park Avenue, that's 1620 North Park Avenue, Tucson, Arizona. And uh, they'll send you the L five newsletter, which uh, I, I find to be the most mind blowing, uh, life changing uh, publication that I've ever read. Okay, let's uh, let's keep moving up the ladder of these ear circuits.
4: <laughs> We're only up to number five so far. You want to take us higher? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we talked a little bit about uh, number five, uh, being concerned with the with the body, the perception of the body body time, and uh, we talked about how you feel that the energy, that we can do something on circuit five now, which uh, was never before the case, and this distinguishes our society from uh, from uh, the ancient uh, Romans and their decadence. Uh, where do we go uh,
1: outside of going to space? What uh, What comes after that? The interesting thing is this. In no culture in history did you have what we now have, a consciousness movement. It's a multi-billion dollar, you know, TM and EST and uh, uh, the notion of personal growth, of consciousness (coughs) raising. Every Girl Scout troop, you know, meets once a week in the local uh, uh, grammar school for consciousness raising sessions. The notion that you can grow and evolve in your own life, it's an old hit. Oriental idea, which, which has now become very Americanized and, uh, is the key to the fifth circuit by uh, experience. But then what do you do after you've, uh, centered your uh, consciousness and got your stuff together and your suntan and your polyphase orgasmed and your self-actualized and, uh, where do you go? Well, of course, my answer is we go to space, but then, uh, to go on to the sixth circuit of the nervous system, once we live in space, see, Remember, we're living at the bottom of a four thousand mile gravity swamp. We're literally crawling around like slugs in the bottom of this uh four thousand mile atmosphere at sea. Energy trap. It's an energy trap, yeah. It takes yeah. only one billionth of the solar energy gets down to us through the uh nine allen belt in the atmosphere. Not only that it's hard to communicate, uh down here we have to use crude methods. We communicate by, uh, by rubbing our vocal cords together, which create sound waves which are carried through this medium, this ocean that we live in. And I rub my, uh, my vocal cords together and it hits your eardrums. That's very mechanical. Such things as telepathy, uh, neuroelectric communication, computer brain link-up, uh, and so forth cannot exist down here because we're at the bottom of the swamp. It's as though we were swimming underwater. We can't talk. You know, because we'll, that's, that's, we try to use telepathy down here, but we can't because there's too much interference with gravity, electromagnetic, uh, uh, racket, and the atmosphere itself. As soon as we live up in, in space, uh, then the, the electricity, which we know exists in the brain, uh, most likely, uh, can be used for, uh, a higher form of communication, which will not be muscular. I want to point out that, that everything we're doing down here is muscular. Uh, even our, 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 language, our thought is muscular in the sense that it's, uh, it's, uh, artifacts, uh, that come from, from vocalisms. Up there we will learn how to, to think and to communicate, uh, electro-neurologically. This is going to be one of the, uh, aspects that will develop and the sixth circuit of our nervous system will be activated then. The, the interesting thing about mutation is this and metamorphosis and I, I'm going to tell you now one of the most impressive uh, findings of science, which of course every school boy and girl knows, within the DNA code of every caterpillar and the DNA code is in every cell in the body of the caterpillar, is the blueprint for constructing the body and the nervous system of a butterfly now in the in the DNA code of an infant in each one of us and we were babies in our mother's arms, in our DNA code was the blueprint for a sexually mature adult. Now, you didn't know how large your breasts were going to be or you didn't know, you know exactly what your sexual uh, physique would be, but your DNA code knew, although the little baby had no awareness of this. So that when we leave the surface of the planet, just as when we left our mother's arms or when we left the sea to crawl on the shoreline, the new circuits of our nervous system are going to be activated.
5: You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: Although I've said it before, uh, each time this idea of space migration comes up, well, I, I feel compelled to let you know that I'm personally not a subscriber to that possibility. And since I've said this before, I'll just leave it at that for now. In fact, uh, since we still have one more tape in this series to go, I'm going to reserve my comments about this long interview of Dr. Leary on KPFK uh, Radio in Houston, Texas in 1976, November of 76, that is. Uh, I'm going to reserve my comments for the next podcast when I'll see if I can come up with uh, some kind of a coherent comment about all three podcasts uh, that take up this interview. But... Right now, I want to once again say a little bit more about the Occupy Together demonstrations that are taking place in hundreds of cities around the U.S. right now. To begin, uh, I want to play a short clip I recorded while watching some of the proceedings from the Speaker's Corner at the Occupy Wall Street protest. As you no doubt know, the uh, demonstrators have not been allowed to use electronic amplification of uh, what the speakers are saying, and so their method is for a speaker to say a few words that are then repeated by the crowd up front, so as to uh, carry the message all the way to the back. And the talks, for the most part, have been well worth listening to, even though you have to hear everything twice. So I'm only going to play one short clip right now, just to give you an idea of how it works. The speaker this time is uh, Bill McGibbon, who is a well-known environmentalist, uh, author and journalist who has been at the forefront of many discussions about global climate change as uh, well as being a participant in the sit-ins and demonstrations all around the world on that issue.
6: We've had 15,000 rallies. We have 15,000 rallies. In every country. In every country. Except North Korea. Except North
7: Korea. Except
6: North Korea. <laughs> every Everywhere around the world. Everywhere, Everywhere around the world. Poor people and black people and brown people and Asian people and young people. Poor, Poor people,
7: people, black people, brown
6: people, Asian people, young people, people are standing up. Are
5: standing, are standing up.
6: up. Most of those places. Most of those places don't produce that much carbon. Don't produce that much carbon. They need us. They need us. To act with them and for them. To act with them and for them. Because the problem. Because the problem. Is 20 blocks. Is 20 blocks. South of here. South of here. That's where the empire lives. That's where the empire lives. And we've got. And we've got. To figure out. To figure out. How to tame it. How to tame it. And make it work for this planet and make it work for this planet or not work at all or not work at all thank you guys very much
0: so that's what it sounds like at the occupy wall street site these days but please don't think that everyone there has climate change as their number one issue In fact, the lack of a single, well-focused issue is what is driving the establishment media nuts, I think. And it's also the thing that they'll probably never be able to get their heads around. Actually, I did hear one demonstrator answer a reporter with a perfect reply when he asked, Well, just what is it that you want? And the woman replied, We want the same things you want. (laughs) And for me, that perfectly sums it up. Unless, of course, you're in the 1% and not the 99% with the rest of us. I think that uh, 1960s activist and author Todd Gitlin uh, said it best when he said, We are the 99% is a clear message. It is unfair and, in fact, disgusting that the American political economy is run for the benefit of a plutocracy. I don't see how that can be misunderstood. Another writer, uh, Robert Borosich, said... Occupy Wall Street has no policy agenda, but it has utter moral clarity. The demonstrators have built an island of democracy in the belly of Wall Street. The bankers looking down on them would be on the street had not the taxpayers bailed them out, and now they are confronted with students sinking under student debt with no jobs, homeowners who are underwater and can't find mortgage relief, workers desperate for relief. No one is confused about the message. Wall Street got bailed out. Main Street was abandoned. The top 1% rigs the rules and pockets the rewards, and the 99% get sent the bill for the party they weren't even invited to. Occupy Wall Street is already a political steamroller. Without an agenda, without an electoral operation, without a slate of candidates, if it continues to grow, it will force every national politician to decide whose side he or she is on. Are you with the banks or with the 99%? And prove it. Reporters will ensure the questions get posed. Voters will be interested in the answers. Now I want to add my own personal hot button, uh, at least the hot button of the moment for me. And while I very seldom mention politics in these podcasts, at a time like this, I feel compelled to add my two cents to the mix as well. Actually, I've got more than one issue that I'd like to raise, but I'm going to focus on one just for now, and that involves how you intend to vote in next year's presidential election if you live in the United States. During the campaign season of 2008, uh, I actually went out on a limb in one of the podcasts and said that I was going to support Obama, uh, and mainly because I thought it would be a complete disaster to have that Clinton woman sitting in the White House. Now I'm not so sure that uh, she would have done worse than the current occupant. In fact, it was only a month or so after I made that comment in a podcast that Obama betrayed me. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be the last time. But one of the issues I was following at the time was that of domestic spying without search warrants. At first, Obama said he would filibuster the new draconian law regarding spying on us in our homes but once he secured the nomination, he reversed himself and vigorously supported spying on U.S. citizens without a warrant. I knew then that uh, he was willing to lie to us about anything in order to get what he wanted, but, hey, that's the way the 1% works, so I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. But since being elected, uh, he's gone back on his word about a whole range of issues and promises that he made to us in order to get our votes. He hasn't closed the prison at Guantanamo, as he promised. He not only didn't end state-sponsored torture and rendition, he's institutionalized and expanded it. The unnecessary war in Iraq still drags on, and the war in Afghanistan is significantly larger than it was when he took charge. Then we we come to the issue of medical marijuana. And here's what Obama had to say when he was still trying to get the votes from our community.
5: Uh, Now... When it comes to medical marijuana, I, I, I have more of a practical view than anything else. I mean, my attitude is, is that if, uh, if it's an issue of doctors prescribing medical marijuana as a uh, treatment for glaucoma or as a cancer treatment, uh, I think that should be appropriate because there really is no difference between that and a doctor prescribing morphine or anything else. I, I mean, I, I, I would not punish doctors if it's prescribed in a way that uh, is appropriate. That may require some changes in federal law. Um, I, will, I will tell you that, you know, I mean, I want to be honest with you. Whether I want to use a whole lot of political capital on that issue, <laughs> when we're trying to get health care passed or end the war in Iraq, uh, is, uh, you yeah, know, the likelihood of that being real high on my. On my list is is uh, okay. is not likely.
1: But It's safe to say you wouldn't you wouldn't be. Uh,
5: I, what I'm not going to be doing what I'm, do I'm not going to make- be doing is using Justice Department resources uh, to try to circumvent uh, state laws on this issue. Simply because I want folks to be investigating violent crimes and potential terrorism. <laughs> We've got a lot of things for our uh, law enforcement officers to deal with.
0: Now, while that seems quite clear, it clearly was a huge lie. Because not only have the federal raids on medical marijuana facilities and persecution of patients continued under Obama, he has significantly stepped up the pogrom against us, as uh, witnessed by the letter that his so-called Justice Department sent to landlords in California just a few days ago. What Obama has done now is that he's given the landlords in California who are renting to medical marijuana dispensaries just 45 days to close them up and evict them, or else Obama will confiscate their shopping centers and other property where the uh, dispensaries are located. In other words, Obama intends to completely close down all medical marijuana distribution in California next month. I'm trying not to get angry right now because I still remember Timothy Leary last week saying that we shouldn't get angry at these screwheads even though we have a good cause to. But what I am leading up to is a plea for you to not only not vote for this man in 2012, but for you to also encourage all of your friends, relatives, neighbors, and co-workers to not vote for him either. And while the reasons I've just mentioned are sufficient for that cause, there is uh, one more huge reason a reason that overrides everything else. As you probably heard, Obama ordered the murder of a U.S. citizen who had never appeared in court to defend himself. Call it an assassination, a hit, or what it really was, a murder. The order was recently carried out, and now a U.S.-born citizen has been murdered by a gutless and cowardly drone attack in Yemen. The man's crimes are primarily what he had to say in his sermons and what he said on his website. In other words, Obama murdered an American-born citizen for exercising his free speech rights. Granted, the uh, Secret Star Commission that meets in the bowels of the White House, who we know very little about, said that he did other dastardly deeds, but they don't say what their evidence is, and in fact they didn't even have to produce any evidence in public before putting a piece of paper in front of Obama requesting approval for murder. You know, I'm an attorney who has sworn to uphold the laws and Constitution of the United States, and I find the actions of Obama and these people odious in the extreme and most definitely anti-American. Think about this for a minute. The President of the United States has ordered the execution of one of our citizens without the benefit of any type of judicial review whatsoever. The only review he had was of his own lawyers in the executive branch. And I'm talking about the 50-page memo two obviously unqualified lawyers by the names of David Barron and Martin Lederman wrote in order to justify such an unconstitutional action. And by the way, Barron is a professor at Harvard Law School when he's not working for the government, and Lederman does the same as a professor at Georgetown Law School when he's not a government employee. So if you're thinking about going to law school, you maybe should cross off those institutions from your list because they're quite obviously institutions for the criminally insane if they employ guys like this. Uh, Well, I've got to stop here on this Obama thing because, uh, well, you're probably going to think that I'm a Tea Party supporter or some kind of a weirdo like that. Well, I'm not, uh, in case you're wondering. I'm just an old-school Vietnam vet who simply doesn't believe in killing people without first giving them a chance to defend themselves. So, my pitch to you is to not vote for Obama in 2012. And don't give me this sad song about him being the lesser of two evils. Since he's the first U.S. president to order the murder of someone he felt threatened by, I'd say he is no longer the lesser of the evils in Washington. Don't let the establishment bully you into voting not for someone but against the other guy just because you're fearful of what the other guy would do. How does it get worse than having the president order murder by drone? Do they have to do it inside the U.S. before you get the message? Personally, I'm going to write in none of the above, and that's who I'm voting for president for, and I hope that millions more of us do the same thing in order to let these screwhead politicians know that they don't have anything close to a mandate. And that's what I see the Occupy Together movement being all about, the fact that the majority of people in this land think they're getting a raw deal by the oligarchy, better known as the 1%. Take a breath, Lorenzo. <laughs> now, uh, in order to calm myself down a bit before I close, I'd like to read for you the last part of what Naomi Klein had to say at the Occupy Wall Street camp the other day. And my guess is that what she has to say is very close to what you and I are thinking right now ourselves. Uh, and here's what uh, Ms. Klein had to say. We all know, or at least sense, that the world is upside down. We act as if there is no end to what is actually finite, fossil fuels in the atmospheric space to absorb their emissions, and we act as if there are strict and immovable limits to what is actually bountiful, the financial resources to build the kind of society we need. The task of our time is to turn this around, to challenge this false scarcity, to insist that we can afford to build a decent, inclusive society, while at the same time respect the real limits to what the earth can take. What climate change means is that we have to do this on a deadline. This time, our movement cannot get distracted, divided, burned out, or swept away by events. This time, we have to succeed. And I'm not talking about regulating banks and increasing taxes on the rich, though that's important. I am talking about changing the underlying values that govern our society. This is hard to fit into a single media-friendly demand, and it's also hard to figure out how to do it. It is no less urgent for being difficult. That is what I see happening in this square. In the way you are feeding each other, keeping each other warm, sharing information freely and providing health care, meditation classes, and empowerment training. My favorite sign here says, I care about you. In a culture that trains people to avoid each other's gaze, to say, let them die, that is a deeply radical statement. A few final thoughts. In this great struggle, here are some things that don't matter. What we wear, whether we shake our fists or make peace signs, whether we can fit our dreams for a better world into a media soundbite. And here are a few things that do matter. Our courage our moral compass, how we treat each other. We have picked a fight with the most powerful economic and political forces on the planet. That's frightening. And as this movement grows from strength to strength, it will get more frightening. Always be aware that there will be temptation to shift to smaller targets, like, say, the person sitting next to you at this meeting. After all, that is a battle that's easier to win. Don't give in to the temptation. I'm not saying don't call each other on shit, but this time, let's treat each other as if we plan to work side by side in struggle for many, many years to come, because the task before us will demand nothing less. Let's treat this beautiful movement as if it is the most important thing in the world, because it is. It really is. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.
7: I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street. There's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. Get up, go to your windows, open them, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Things have got to change. How many stations is this going out? You've got to get mad. I know it goes to Louisville and Atlanta. we're not going to take this anymore. Then we'll figure out what to do about the depression and the inflation and the oil crisis. But first, get up out of your chairs, open the window, stick your head out and yell, and say, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. You've got to get mad, you've got to say, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Stick your head out of the window, open it, and stick your head out, and keep yelling, and yell, I'm as mad as hell, I'm not going to take this anymore. Just get up from your chairs, right now, go to Where the window. Where are you going? I want to see if yelling. The window, open it, and stick your head out, and yell, and keep yelling, I'm... i mad as hell, I'm not going to take this
4: anymore. I'm mad as hell! I'm not gonna take it
7: anymore! I'm made as hell! I'm not gonna take it anymore! I'm made as hell! I'm not gonna take it anymore! I'm, mad as hell I'm not gonna, I'm take, not not gonna it take it anymore! I'm not gonna take it anymore! Wait.
0: Now it's your turn.